You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Well, at various times I thought I would specialise in, in disarmament. And then I thought I, I might specialise in uh, Middle East uh, sort of affairs. Um, uh, it was, uh, as ever, of course, a, a critical time in the Middle East and uh, 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 Iran, uh, obviously a very significant uh, player in the region for, uh, for various reasons. And so very, very interesting uh, work uh, professionally and intellectually. But then, quite by accident, in, in uh, uh, the embassy in, in The Hague, we received these regular bulletins from the UN um, mentioning uh, vacancies, available vacancies. And I picked one up really by chance, and there was a uh, position in, in WIPO, in World Intellectual Property Organization, on working on um, uh, intellectual property and, and development in the, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. And I thought, wow, uh, it hadn't occurred to me, literally until then, that the two strands of my experience might, might fit together. Uh, and uh, so I applied for that position and got it. Uh, that, was, that would have been towards the end of 1995. That was Anthony Topman, and I am your host, Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. Anthony Tovman is a Director of Intellectual Property, Government Procurement and Competition Division at the World Trade Organization. He is a well-known figure in international trade intellectual property scene. We had a fascinating conversation spanning his illustrious career across the private sector, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, various embassies, WIPO, Academia and the WTO. During the last few years, intellectual property in international trade has had its moment in the sun. So it was great to catch up with Anthony and talk about his career and some challenges and opportunities in the sector for the next few months and years. Anthony was a gracious guest, and I was thrilled to finally have this conversation that had been a long time coming. He is also a regular listener of the show, which is always great to hear. I can't wait for you to listen to this one. Subscribe so that you don't miss a thing. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or your enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Tony, uh, good, good, uh, good morning. Thank you for accepting my invitation. I'm really thrilled to have this conversation with you. Well, I'm delighted to, to join you because I'm a great fan of your, your podcast. <laughs> and uh, I've learned a lot from uh, the conversations you've had with others. No. I don't know if I can contribute. Uh, yeah, you uh, you certainly can. And uh, thank you very much for those kind words. I mean, we talked a bit uh, briefly the other day and I heard a bit of your, your life story. But you're originally from 
Australia, is that correct? That's right. Um, How was it growing up in, in Australia? Uh, well, it was a... So I, I was uh, uh, going to primary school in the 60s, secondary school in the 70s. It was a very uh, insular, uh, complacent society. Uh, I went to a school that was monolingual, monocultural, monogender. Uh, it was an exotic thing to meet someone uh, with Italian background or Greek background uh, in, in that environment. It was uh, very rare to meet, meet a, a, a foreign national. We had one uh, US citizen at our school and that was like a big deal. So while it was very comfortable and uh, very, very settled, I suppose, it was also quite, quite closed off. And I think my generation of Australians in particular Uh, uh, left school, went into adult life with with a strong desire to to get to know the the outside world and and also to see transformations in our own society, which uh, uh, since since then has has transformed completely and it's a it's a much more interesting, much more dynamic and and diverse uh, culture uh, than the one I, I knew when I grew up. So was was eventually your reaction to join the The foreign service was it a reaction to this precisely what you're saying? In part, that that's that's true. I wanted to uh, well see the world as it were, and and also consciously uh, move into a uh, an environment, a society that uh, where I w I would learn, where I broaden my perspective, where I'd actually see uh, the world from a very different vantage point. And you. You studied, you studied engineering? That's right. Initially, my, my first, uh, first degree was in uh, engineering, uh, pure mathematics and computer science, because I thought I should do something very practical, very sort of concrete and practical. Uh, it turned out um, I, I had a, a kind of a stage as a, as a trainee uh, engineer, a civil engineer on a huge construction site, And I was very bad at it. I was <laughs> absolutely disastrous at it because uh, it mainly involved um, fighting with uh, with subcontractors and and organizing shipments of concrete and and so on. Uh, and I, I was very good uh, on paper. I was very good at the the theory. Uh, I remember once having to uh, design a parabolic uh, floor of a of a uh, of a tank, and it was the mathematics was fascinating. But actually getting a, a, a group of concrete workers to create this parabola in, in real life, it was disastrous. And so it became very clear that that was not, not my, voca my professional vo vocation. Likewise, when it came to computer science, um, I loved the mathematics, I loved the logic of it. But when it came to actually churning out code, I was not, uh, I was not uh, frankly, employable. But, uh, but then this was your entry to the, the world of... Intellectual property, yeah, in, indirectly, indirectly, because I then uh, had a, if you like, a very early midlife crisis, and I went to study. I felt I, I, I really wanted to get a broader education, so I went back to university and studied, uh, well, a number of um, humanities subjects, but end, ended up uh, majoring in philosophy and uh, classical Greek, uh, and really. Uh, my entry into intellectual property was, if you like, a, a convergence of those two. Yes. 
the technical scientific side, which, which I love, which fascinates me, at least in principle, if not uh, as an engineer, and also the, the logic and the language that I learned in my, in my second uh, degree. That's, that, that to me was the essence of the challenge of working in the field as a professional, as a practitioner in intellectual property. In other words, looking at um, a new technology and thinking about what's the essence of it, not the, not the specific appearance of this or that gadget, but what's the inventive concept within it. And that's a, a process of abstraction. And so actually, believe it or not, I, I found philosophical training very helpful from that point of view. And likewise, so much of it is about language, the, the language of a patent uh, specification, a very unusual language, but nonetheless, it is language. And uh, so those kind of linguistic skills came, came to the fore. I didn't, this was not planned, uh, <laughs> I, it, it, but it was a, an unexpected convergence of those two areas. Uh, so uh, graduating for the second time, I then commenced work as a, as a patent attorney. I mean, I think that you, you are really, in hindsight, you're saying and you're seeing the connections, but I think that your path to, to the, the world of intellectual property is pretty unique. I actually have never heard it before. No, there's, uh, the, the, a lot of people come, come to it uh, through, through music. Yeah. Uh, our, our great colleague here, uh, recently retired, Henry Varga, is, is a brilliant musician, and uh, that often leads people into the copyright field, at least. Uh, but it's true. I don't think there's many people with uh, with uh, honors degrees in philosophy and classical Greek, <laughs> uh, but uh, who, who, who working in the in the patent field. But I honestly f f found it very very helpful. No, I mean you you explaining the the rationale behind it. It does make sense. Uh, but but perhaps when you were looking at it, maybe you yourself had some questions. What am I going to do with these two? Like, uh, oh yes. Well, when I when I graduated, I, I, I was uh, I, I'm constantly reassuring my 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 two children that uh, I was rejected from many many jobs at that point because it was a rather peculiar background, um, and uh, it I, I, I was not uh, even aware of the real character of the intellectual property profession until then. Uh, but I really took to it. Uh, very very quickly and, and uh, loved the the ideas uh, the the concept of the, of the work uh, and uh, uh, so I, I've, so in in Australia as in other countries it's a specific uh, professional qualification you you go through training and and uh, specific legal exams and practical exams practical experience and so I qualified uh, as a patent and trademark attorney uh, at the, at that time. So how was that experience as opposed to your first experience in this large uh, building uh, infrastructure? Was this what you were looking for? It, it was uh, the kind of work I was looking for because it, uh, it was, well, I, I was very, very simply better at it. I was, I was at least reasonably competent uh, <laughs> and, and it, it was more, uh, so it, I, I am better, I suppose, working uh, at a, at a not not abstract, but a but a but a more uh, legal, formal, linguistic level uh, than than actually going out in the field and and installing. This was a massive uh, uh, paper mill. Actually, it was a massive project uh, that I'd, I'd worked on, 
and I have immense admiration for the people who do that for a living. The people I graduated with have done extraordinary things. One of them uh, uh, was one of the main people building the, the, the new bridge uh, system in, in Hong Kong, for example. Amazing achievements, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, how did you then end, ended up uh, going to the foreign, foreign affairs? Foreign, foreign affairs? Yes, it was a Department of Foreign Affairs uh, in Australia. And, and so at, the, at that time, uh, it goes back to your earlier question. Uh, I did want to see the world. I mean, I was uh, at, at that point uh, living and working in, in, in Melbourne in a professional environment. Um, but, I, but I saw myself, you know, thinking, thinking, thinking forward another, another 40 years of doing that. And looking at the files build up, um, and uh, and so on, uh, I thought I really want to, in a sense, see the world, explore a, a, a broader horizon. At that point, uh, and also uh, working in the field of intellectual property as a practitioner, I just had a, a hint, a suggestion of the kind of policy issues that were, were floating around. Uh, at that time, in particular. Uh, the great majority of our work as patent attorneys and, and even as trademark attorneys in Australia was for foreign clients, mm. mostly you know large foreign clients. It was actually quite rare to have certainly an individual inventor or even a domestic uh, uh, technology producer. Uh, and I was thinking, what what is going on here? You know, we're, we're processing these vast amounts of, uh, uh, of patent uh, documentation. Uh, but what, what's it all add up to? So it was a combination of those two things. So an interest in the wider policy context and a desire to, to work uh, in a, in a uh, less familiar setting, uh, to see the world from a very different vantage point. So that, that led to a and a, a successful application to join the, the diplomatic service. And from your perspective, um, you seeing the lack of technology being created, were you looking at it from like a policy perspective? Like how can we enhance this? How can we make it more accessible, more? Was this like your approach to it? Very much so. Although, although to, to be honest, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a patent attorney, you're receiving the, uh, the, the, the inventors, the technology producers, Uh, and my, my immediate concern actually was that at that point the profession in Australia was, was quite narrow. It, it, was, it was obliged to remain narrow. Uh, it, it could, uh, as a patent attorney, you could uh, go through the whole process of invention through to a granted patent, but you couldn't advise uh, professionally on licensing, on financing, On technology transfer, and sometimes it was quite heartbreaking. Where you know the the iconic small inventor would come in uh, with his invention in the shoebox, and there it is. And uh, he says, "Well, what do I do now?" And say, so, "Well, uh, as as the as the patent attorney, you say, well, uh, I will charge you a large amount of money to produce a a very complicated technical document that you will probably not understand." Uh, and uh, I will continue to charge you money to take that through the whole process of getting a patent. That patent will only apply in, in this, uh, this jurisdiction. So if you want to, there's no world patent, by the way. You've asked about that. No, there's no such thing as a worldwide <laughs> patent. 
And so you're going to have to choose uh, which countries you, you want to seek a, a patent in, and I will charge you a lot of money. Uh, well, my overseas associates will charge a lot of money for that process, and the, and the cost will continue right through the life of the patent. And by the way, it will enter the public domain everywhere else. And they look at me and say, well, look, I came here to work out how I can make money from this, from this invention. You're telling me, you know, sometimes you will have to mortgage your house to get a piece of paper. And I can't tell you what to do with that piece of paper. You have to go to somebody else. And at that stage, there were very few really uh, uh, business-minded technology licensing uh, advisors. That has changed completely. Uh, But uh, it it did spark that that, uh, concern, which remains unbroken today. The idea that um, we have to move from the idea of a patent as a, if you like, an inert piece of paper or simply as a bundle of legal rights as such to something that actually can be used to structure, inform uh, partnerships, you know, the technology transfer that we're always concerned about. Because so often, in particular, the, the small inventors I dealt with, they were not looking to sue people. They didn't want to take people to court. They wanted uh, licensees. They wanted technology partners. Uh, and and yet at that stage, at that stage, and this is quite some time ago now, that the emphasis was on uh, producing um, uh, you know good quality patent documents, but not helping people take the next step or, or, or to apply those or work with those or even get financing for it. Uh, so that that also sparked that you know the, the, an ongoing concern, which remains today, and and you can even. Um, expand that or take that upper step to the overall patent system uh, where, where I've always been concerned uh, that it shouldn't be entirely construed and analysed and uh, managed or governed uh, as a, purely as a, a means of creating exclusive rights, but rather as more of a uh, technology innovation and uh, transfer ecosystem. Uh, building partnerships and to fast forward of course uh, that's the idea we have in the the TRIPS agreement in article 7 the idea that uh, the the IP system should function in a positive some way to as it says the mutual advantage of the producers and the users of of technology so that that concern was implanted in me in me at a very early stage in in, as a very junior patent attorney and uh, when you were actually working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you were putting into place some of these uh, in the negotiations, were you not? Uh, indirectly, initially, because uh, I, I didn't join as a, hmm. uh, as a, certainly not as a specialist IP person, I joined as a, a generic diplomat, if you like. And so my first uh, work was in fact as a uh, disarmament uh, specialist. Oh. And so, in fact, I came to Geneva for the first time uh, for the negotiations on the Chemical Weapons Convention, the CWC, in the, in the uh, uh, Conference on Disarmament. Uh, so that, that was, that was uh, in fact, my uh, uh, initial professional direction. And at one stage, I thought I would I'd build a career in, in disarmament. So um, later on, when I... Uh, in a later posting, I was posted to The Hague when the 
Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons was being established, the OPCW. I was uh, Australia's representative to the Preparatory Commission. That was absolutely fascinating for a whole host of reasons, but uh, surprisingly an IP issue did come up, and this was the question of confidentiality, uh, because the OPCW uh, manages a verification regime, and confidentiality of business information uh, of industrial information was a, a very important part of that and, and I ended up chairing the expert group on confidentiality in the preparatory commission which dealt in a very very practical way with establishing an appropriate confidentiality regime for um, uh, uh, well verification exercises relating to um, uh, chemical weapons disarmament and was that uh After that, you said, like, ah, oh, I'm still interested in IP. Maybe I should uh, get back to that, or, or how did it happen? Well, not for a while, because then I... Uh, so, ironically, uh, the, the ministry wanted to post me to, to Geneva uh, at that time uh, to work on, on disarmament issues. But personally, I still wanted, uh, if you like, more of a uh, personally challenging posting, so a, a posting to, to an environment where I would see the world from a, a, a broader perspective. And I didn't see that necessarily as uh, sitting in, ironically, sitting in um, multilateral meetings in Geneva. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I shocked everyone, or shocked a lot of my friends by turning down Geneva, which was seen as a very plum posting, uh, and instead uh, took a posting to, to Iran, to Tehran, where I was, I was in the Australian embassy there. Uh, so that was my, my next professional professional move. And this was when? Uh, well, I, I know exactly when it was because uh, I flew in uh, exactly the day that the the Gulf uh, War broke out. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, uh, I in, in 19, uh, It would have been January 1991, uh, the, the, the Kuwait uh, uh, the Gulf War. And indeed, I was in... Uh, I, I was visiting, uh, meeting friends in Geneva on my way there, and it was when uh, uh, Jim Baker and Tarek Aziz were, were meeting in the Intercontinental here, trying to do a deal to forestall the war. war. It, it, of course, fell through, and just as I was flying in, uh, I think over Turkish airspace, uh, the, 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 the war broke out. My minister was trying to reach me to tell me not to go, um, because no one knew what would happen at that point. It was obviously very volatile. But I was uh, perfectly, perfectly safe. And indeed, I spent my first few weeks um, in Tehran uh, doing language training, Farsi uh, language training, and skiing. Uh, so uh, my friends thought I was a, uh, an amazing war hero at the, on the, <laughs> on the front line. In fact, I was having a very pleasant experience um, going, going, to, going to parties and skiing and learning Farsi. And was this was this experience what you were looking for in terms of like seeing the world and learning about different cultures and did this provide this uh, this thing that you were looking for? Absolutely, yes, absolutely, because it's a it's a it's a remarkable um, uh, society, a, a remarkable culture uh, that I was frankly uh, quite ignorant about. Uh, In a way, with my education, I'd seen the other side, you know, the, the, the whole story of the Greeks versus the Persians. I was on the Greek side in, in terms of my education and so on. 
Uh, and so my interest goes way back to, you know, right through to ancient times. So for me it was absolutely, absolutely fascinating uh, from a personal, uh, personal point of view, from an intellectual point of view. And uh, after that, you, you then eventually made it to, I don't know if I'm skipping some <laughs> steps, <laughs> but what was next after that? Well, at, that's when, that's when um, uh, the, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons was being established in The Hague, uh, a preparatory commission Uh, was formed to put in place the, 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 the very structure, the very organi organization from the ground up, quite literally from the ground up. The, the Dutch hosts were building a, a building for the, uh, for the organization. Uh, and uh, because of my background uh, working in disarmament, I was asked to, to transfer across uh, to The Hague. So I was, uh, I was working there for... Uh, I think three years um, on the on the uh, OBCW preparatory commission. So that's that. Uh, this is a large period of time where you were uh, doing something that doesn't exclusively relate to IP. Because when I think about you, I think of yes. intellectual property. Yeah. But now I see that I mean your career is very rich and many. It has many different. Angles. <laughs> well, at various times I thought I would specialize in, in disarmament, and then I thought I, I might specialize in uh, Middle East uh, sort of affairs. Um, uh, it was, uh, as ever, of course, a, a critical time in the Middle East, and uh, 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 Iran, uh, obviously a very significant uh, player in the region for, uh, for, for various reasons, and so very, very interesting. Uh, work uh, professionally and intellectually, but then, quite by accident, in, in uh, uh, the embassy in, in the Hague, we received these regular bulletins from the UN um, mentioning uh, vacancies, available vacancies, and I picked one up really by chance. And there was a uh, position in in WIPO, in World Intellectual Property Organization, on working on. Um, Uh, intellectual property and, and development in the uh, in the Asia Pacific region, and I thought, wow, uh, it hadn't occurred to me literally until then that the two strands of my experience might might fit together, uh, and uh, so I applied for that position and got it. Uh, that was that would have been towards the end of 1995. I joined WIPO. So eventually, you did make it to. Geneva. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, like everyone else, once I'm, once you're here, it's very hard to leave. It's like yeah, hotel California. I that's think. also my experience. I, I came for one year. I've been here 14 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did, I did, I did, I did get away. Um, so I worked in the in, in Wipo. Um, I, I worked in uh, Wipo for uh, nearly three years. Initially in the Asia Pacific Bureau. And ironically, or interestingly, I ended up going back to Iran because we were, uh, apart from other things, uh, uh, working on, on, on developing their, their IP system. But I, I had uh, work right across the Asia-Pacific Asia region. It was really interesting uh, work, um, and uh, that really set the pattern for, for my, my future work on intellectual property. But I was also involved uh, in a complete 
reworking of the overall program uh, and budget structure of, of WIPO towards the end of my time there. And that's when some really important developments took place, in particular uh, something that I was very passionate about, which was the uh, expanding of the policy scope of the IP system, because uh, WIPO had been a somewhat in, introverted, inward-looking organisation. As with the whole IP profession, I might say, it mirrored that, that experience, that it was uh, quite technical and, and uh, quite self-contained, if you like. But these, these bigger issues were starting to, to break through. The Convention on Biological Diversity had, had been concluded and was raising questions about uh, access and benefit sharing to genetic resources and traditional knowledge, uh, uh, issues concerning uh, technology transfer, climate change, and in, indeed um, public health and, and human rights. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of the small team that would help, that really redesigned the the program and budget structure of WIPO at that time. And that's when the, the programs were introduced, in particular on what is now traditional knowledge uh, and public health uh, in, in WIPO. So that was absolutely fantastic. But then at that time I, I, I got a call from, from Canberra, from the, from the department, saying, look, uh, we have a... Uh, uh, a vacancy as the head of the intellectual property area in the in the uh, in the in the in the department. Uh, it might be time to come home. And uh, as uh, I, I'd, I'd met my wife in Iran, we'd never actually lived in Australia, uh, and uh, I was somewhat homesick. So uh, we went back to to Canberra at that point, and so I returned to the department uh, and worked as the director of the intellectual property section there for the next. Uh, I guess three, three and a half years. So at this point you were actually involved in, in negotiations, bilateral yes. negotiations? Yeah, uh, there was a, uh, actually not quite because uh, it, it was a very interesting time. But at, that, at that point, bilateral trade agreements were still uh, uh, frowned upon. Uh, the, the framework was still very much uh, multilateral and uh, it was, the, of course, the early days of the TRIPS Agreement of the WTO. Uh, I might say the, the TRIPS Council was, was uh, much more active and engaged uh, on, on, on current issues. Uh, there was a sense that uh, uh, there would be further negotiations. It was the lead-up to the, 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 the Doha round. Uh, so there was a, an expectation, at least, that there would be... Um, multilateral negotiations, but of course uh, things went in a different direction. And really the first uh, very significant bilateral uh, trade negotiations took place shortly after I left. So I, I, uh, I remember discussions at the time when there were uh, some, some early studies about what would happen if we did a, a bilateral trade agreement with this or that country. And it was like a frisson of shock around the table because it was still considered, well, unorthodox. Um, still, multilateralism was, was seen as, as the way. That, of course, has changed totally in, in the time since then. But I never myself was uh, negotiating directly uh, a bilateral trade agreement on touching on IP. What was, what was very interesting at the time, though, was the, uh, the APEC 
uh, work on intellectual property. And it was one of my, the, my most professionally satisfying experiences was working with the APEC Intellectual Property Experts Group, which was a true uh, uh, collaborative, cooperative uh, endeavour. This was in the period when um, the TRIPS agreement was due to come into force for many developing countries in the late 90s. They were looking at the year 2000 with real apprehension uh, that, uh, and as it was often expressed that when the TRIPS agreement comes into force for developing countries, there'll be a cascade of disputes brought, there'll be trade sanctions, uh, uh, we'll be put out of business. And uh, uh, in, in many developing countries, in particular, I was working in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, a huge effort to push through large amounts of legislation to be TRIPS, TRIPS compliant. And, and it was very uh, touchy, very, very sensitive, uh, a lot of anxiety. And the APEC IP experts group was the exact opposite of that. It was a, there was a, a genuine uh, collegial dialogue between colleagues working on the same issues, the same challenges. I remember we were preparing together for what's, what became the review of biotech patenting under the TRIPS agreement, the 273B uh, review. And at one of the meetings, we basically looked at each other and said, does anyone understand this? What is all this stuff? Um, and I said, no idea. <laughs> and so as a result of that, uh, we put together a, a training program for, for experts or for IP officials around the region to go through the whole, uh, the whole set of uh, issues uh, and with practical exercises and so on. This is where my earlier experience in doing capacity building in the Asia Pacific Bureau in, in Waipo was very helpful, but that was that was the kind of approach we took. Rather than argue about it as we do in the Trips Council, it was a, a, a genuine dialogue, and it was a reminder to me that uh, that for, for uh, we shouldn't lose sight of the possibilities of simply acknowledging that yes, these are challenging issues. There may not be no may be no easy answers. We've taken this approach. Uh, this is what ended up in our legislation. This is why we did it. Uh, let's, we're seeing if it still works properly, um, uh, uh, and because it, it may be open to review and revision, as, as is natural with any kind of uh, uh, legislation in the IP area. So it, it was a much more open, open um, uh, conversation. I later wrote an article about that, which uh, I, I titled uh, "The Collective Management of Trips." sort of taking that pun of, or that wordplay from collective management of, of copyright, the idea that we can have a collective management of trips. In other words, uh, sharing ideas, experience about, about its implementation, not, not in an adversarial or dispute settlement context, but rather in a collaborative context, given that uh, uh, many governments, many societies around the world are wrestling with, with the same kind of... Uh, uh, challenges of getting this this infamous balance right in the IP system, the balance between the public interest, the private interest, uh, and ensuring innovation occurs, but access also occurs. All of that uh, stuff, and of course that that was particularly critical then in, in relation to biotech patenting, but also increasingly in the public health area. This um, this approach to I think that your approach has always been like a multilateral approach. You, even from the early, I see like a threat. So was this eventually, was this eventually like, that's where 
that's where I have to focus my efforts, like on this uh, multilateral world, to make it more accessible, give uh, access to everyone. How how was this, uh, like behind your mind? Yeah, I, I, it would be tempting to claim that this was like this uh, this uh, very very wise kind of or a very very clear um, uh, strategy or, or philosophy. Uh, I, th I think, though, I came to it more, more incrementally, and uh, um, uh, but certainly, uh, uh, I, 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 I see uh, even historically in, in the field of IP, uh, but in the in the field of, uh, if you like, international economic law generally, um, both a, a, a practical and a theoretical uh, uh, argument for for multilateralism. Uh, and uh, uh, I really do see, do see that as, as the, the bedrock, uh, even uh, when, that, when that becomes challenging, when it becomes difficult. In a way, especially when it's, when it's under pressure, that's when you see the, the virtue, the, the value of it, um, and not, not a kind of a, a piecemeal, uh, fragmented approach, um, which uh, also uh, is potentially much more problematic also from the point of view of uh, those seeking to use the system. Uh, uh, this is not to argue for complete uniformity or uh, cutting back on um, regulatory diversity, regulatory uh, uh, autonomy. That's of course a, a fundamental concern. But that can be advanced, and in my view only practically must be advanced in a collaborative way. Uh, trying to manage these issues uh, in a completely autarkic, uh, cut-off manner just just won't won't work. Uh, so, yeah, and, and when it comes to to the new issues uh, that we were looking at, such as traditional knowledge, creating completely new ideas uh, about how we think and think about and work with IP uh, for a completely new kind of conceptual. Uh, intellectual, cultural, even spiritual perspective, uh, to do that in an isolated way, uh, devoid of this multilateral dialogue, I, I think is, is potentially, uh, uh, well, to put it mildly, uh, counterproductive. And also, I, I, the way that you are narrating it, it seems that at each point you made some decisions about your career and personal life that seemed like they were more luck But I don't know. I don't know if it was luck or how. How did you make those changes? How how did they come to to you? Was it something that you were seeking? Or was it something a combination of both? Was it luck, perhaps? Uh, it was certainly not good management. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not good management. And 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 as sometimes people ask me, you know, for career advice, and I say, well, do not ask me for career <laughs> advice because. Uh, uh, It, it is possible. It's, it's very possible. I, I, uh, this is where the philosophical training comes into, into play. It's very possible for me to construct ex post a, 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 a narrative to explain how it, it, it does all make sense. But that was not. It was. It was um, uh, a series of of, um, of opportunities. Uh, in some cases, pure uh, 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 good fortune, I suppose. At least my good fortune, if not. If not for WIPO, when I just happened to see a, an advertisement, and, and that it triggered that thought, that 
Yes, I, I have this long-standing interest in in IP, I, but but it, it unanswered questions about the what we would now call the development dimension of it, um, and yet uh, a chance to work in a international and indeed multilateral environment. Which uh, my work on chemical weapons, uh, of course, uh, that, that, that was an incredibly positive achievement for the multilateral system. Uh, uh, outlawing and verifying the, the outlawing of entire class of weapons of mass destruction. At that time, I thought that was actually quite normal, and it turned out, unfortunately not. It was, uh, it was, um, uh, that was globally, uh, if you like, a stroke of good, good luck that that could come together. But no, indeed, um, the, the, the two strands, though, that, that, uh, uh, that were consistent and, and did guide my choices, one was uh, an interest in linking um, uh, science and technology with with broader development and, and human well-being. Uh, that's uh, and that goes goes way back even to my my um, uh, my work with in computer science and and uh, in engineering, um, but also in my family with the sort of a uh, many conversations with my father, who's, who was uh, uh, fascinated by, by, by technology. Indeed, uh, uh, he, he uh, held a patent himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, that, that dimension, and the other dimension was indeed um, uh, getting a far broader uh, sense of, of, the, of the global community and, and uh, uh, breaking out from what I felt at the time to be a very... Uh, uh, very narrow, very uh, uh, culturally constrained um, uh, background. That you know, um, uh, and I think th- those two, those those are the two impulses that that uh, took me forward. And then, after having spent three years, you mentioned in in Canberra, then you decided to come back to Geneva, like you said. It not yet. Like, <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> no, at at that point, I I was um, I was offered a an academic position, so I actually joined um, uh, the Faculty of Law at uh, the Australian National University uh, because what was being established uh, was a a new centre for uh, intellectual property in agriculture mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, it was responding to the the concern that 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 uh, that, I, that I touched on earlier that uh, the system was well established legally, uh, it was administered well, and so on, but the, there was a big gap between the, the, the system as a legal system, as an administrative system, and the real needs and interests and, and practicalities of those working in the field, literally in the field, in this case. And as my, my family actually has a strong agricultural background, I was very familiar with the, these, these issues. And so for me, this was a fantastic uh, uh, development. So I actually left. It was a big deal. I decided to leave the uh, foreign ministry and, in fact, uh, set set up shop as a, as an academic in uh, in the Faculty of Law. Uh, and uh, that, to me, was my my real calling. If if I, if uh, uh, that that that's really where I felt at home uh, as an academic, but teaching, which I love, research, which I love, but also linking across to uh, Practical policy making, which was the nature of that of that position. However, um, um, roughly a year into that, I got a phone call from 
Francis Gurry, who would later become the Director General in WIPO, saying, um, we really need someone with your background to uh, run this, this program on traditional knowledge, uh, public health and these public policy issues, environment and so on. Uh, what was then called the, uh, the Global Issues Division. Um, it's now uh, the Traditional Knowledge Division and the Global Challenges Division in WIPO. And so that, that was simply um, too enticing. I mean, it was just the, the, the subject matter, absolutely fascinating and quite consistent with, uh, with uh, my academic interests, with uh, the work I'd been doing as well. So that finally got me <laughs> back to Geneva <laughs> after, after a number of false starts. But, um, I mean, you, you mentioned that you felt at home when you were in the academic world, but that's still something that, from what I understand, you keep up with, both as a, as a professor and also as a student. That's true, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, that, that to me is... Um, Uh, one of the, if you like, one of the uh, appealing aspects of, of this kind of work, uh, in spite of the, the mountains of, uh, of journal articles, of master's theses and so on that have been written about just about every issue that uh, we're dealing with, there's still a lot of really significant unanswered questions. They're both theoretically fascinating, but also practically, uh, in terms of human well-being, also e extremely important. So uh, that, that, uh, that intellectual curiosity, um, it's, not, it's not entirely abstract, it's not entirely academic, if you like. It's also an important part of how we can contribute to uh, uh, policy making and, and capacity building um, internationally. To put it another way around, if, if all we had was the, the uh, intellectual or sort of scholarly toolkit we had in 1995 when the TRIPS agreement was concluded, we couldn't do our job. So I see it as part and parcel of, if you like, the day job here in the WTO. And at this time when you were back to, to WIPO, you mentioned that you, in your first time around at WIPO, you were involved in broadening the, the scope of, of WIPO to deal with some of these new issues. But was there any other difference that you perceived from the first time to the second? Uh, well, yeah, yes, it was. Uh, so when I first joined WIPO, the, the Director General was Arpad Bosch, quite a remarkable figure, quite a remarkable figure, very dominant, uh, of course, um, and a very, shall we say, unique management style, very hands-on, very top-down, uh, and... Uh, uh, I'll give you a very precise example. Um, there was real concern about the advent of TRIPS. Uh, I joined in 95, just when TRIPS had come into force, and there was this uh, almost a sense of grievance, you know, that, that TRIPS shouldn't have existed, you know, that the WTO shouldn't come along and help itself to the Paris and Berne conventions, and uh, this, was a, this was a terrible thing. Uh, and... Uh, my first mission for, for WIPO was to go to a, a regional meeting in Bangkok where we had to talk about enforcement of IP. And I was told I must not mention TRIPS. Uh, and from a technical point of view, that's a bit odd <laughs> because <laughs> the one thing, one particular thing that TRIPS does is to articulate uh, or codify a, a great deal of um, of. Uh, the procedural and, and uh, 
uh, uh, even, even the sort of the, the natural justice elements of, of enforcement. I think it's I, I think it's a fascinating area that that isn't sufficiently discussed, by the way. Um, but I, I was reduced to talking about um, the enforcement provisions of the Paris and Berne Conventions. And the next speaker, who was a very outspoken Australian academic, I remember distinctly uh, was free to talk about trips. And uh, he started his lecture by saying, well, you've just heard from Tony about how the Paris and Berne Conventions are out of date. Let me tell you about the TRIPS Agreement. So, <laughs> so, so, that, I mean, that, so that was, that was, that was a, um, you know, a real sense that the dignity of, of WIPO had been, had been kind of threatened by, by the TRIPS Agreement. Um, and uh, it, was, it was still treated in, in, this, in this very kind of uh, inward-looking way. That changed... Um, uh, very considerably, uh, uh, the new director general, Kamal uh, Idris, came in. There was just generally a, 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 a freeing up of that that point of view. And by the time I, I came back, um, it, it was yeah a, a, a more a more more diverse and, and more open uh, approach. I mean, the, the previous um, approach had its strengths. Uh, I, I wrote an article about this. Uh, uh, but I, th- I think it was inevitable that there had to be change, um, uh, because the whole world of IP was opening up, and these these bigger issues, um, a broader approach to to development, human rights dimension, 2000, and, uh, 2000 2001, the Human Rights Commission uh, became very vocal on uh, uh, IP issues, uh, the Doha Declaration on Trips and Public Health, uh, you know. That the, the the whole field was 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 opening up, uh, and a broader, uh, more engaged approach, a more policy-rich approach, and a more diverse approach was inevitable. So I was privileged to see, if you like, three three or four stages of of that evolution. And um, your work on on tradition and knowledge—it's uh, something that I actually. I, I'm not familiar with what the process is, but from what I understand, it's still ongoing. Yes, um, it, it's uh, and uh, uh, the, fir- the so the first the first few years of that were beyond any question the most fascinating uh, and and rewarding um, work I've done in in the professional sphere, because the the initial stage was really a, a process of fact finding and and dialogue. And, and building um, uh, dialogue with, uh, well, in the program we, we refer to it as new beneficiaries, but in a way that was a bit of a euphemism. It's referring to, to particularly indigenous and local communities, uh, uh, who really saw the, if you like, the Western-centric uh, intellectual property system as completely at odds with their values. Uh, really, as, as it was expressed, a system for. Um, for routinely uh, dispossessing them of, of their uh, of their own um, uh, traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions, uh, genetic resources, uh, and what this led to was a really fascinating. I, I see it as kind of a boot camp, going back to the absolute basics of what intellectual property is there for, uh, the kind of um, values and interests that it that it represents. Um, and the ideas of innovation and creativity that it, that it's meant to to recognise, uh, and uh, 
I, I think we, we came back to a, a really fundamental understanding that, yes, innovation is uh, absolutely uh, vital and, and should be recognised and rewarded to some extent, not over the top, but rewarded. Uh, but innovation can look very different compared to a pharmaceutical laboratory in Basel or a traditional healer working in, in a, in a uh, uh, remote, uh, or from our point of view, remote uh, village. Uh, but it's still innovation and it still has, has that, that value. Uh, and if we are to have, if you like, a truly multilateral, uh, truly inclusive global system, then you, you cannot simply say, well, no, there's only one class of winners, those, those who, who fit into the, the established system, and others, uh, it's in the public domain, you know, just like that. Likewise in the cultural area, the idea that uh, uh, cultural works are produced by a lone genius you know, in an attic, uh, it's just not the case that there, there are uh, cultural works that are, are produced by a community, that are, there's a sense of ownership and custodianship by a community, uh, and yet there's, there's, there's no reason why they should be denied any kind of recognition or protection. So it was absolutely fascinating process both in building a dialogue with uh, a far wider range of well, people who had seen the IP system, seen WIPO itself as fundamentally at odds with their worldview even um, to build, build that dialogue to, to bring in a far wider range of voices and to learn practically what, what problems were being encountered and to talk about what kind of legal me- mechanisms can be used to resolve those problems. So uh, I, I, was, I was very fortunate to be part of this, this small team. I have to really acknowledge um, my, my colleagues there, particularly uh, Vent Ventland, who, who still, went yeah. on to become the director yeah. and, and is now taking forward the, the process, which is, uh, has been incredibly challenging from a diplomatic point of view. Um, I left, uh, when I joined WTO, I left uh, in 2009, and, and uh, that was more or less the point at which a, a, a kind of negotiating mandate was, was agreed. So I've been following with great admiration the efforts uh, since then to, to progress things. Um, and, and if you like to, to offer a quick uh, perspective on that, it has always been seen as very political, very north-south um, uh, in its character, as a, as a, as a, even as a discussion, but certainly as a negotiation. But I would say that, that that can betray the fact that there are some very, very significant, very tough legal and policy questions um, that, that, that really do deserve um, deeper dialogue and deeper, deeper consideration going to fundamental questions such as uh, the very legal personality, the legal personhood of an indigenous or local community, uh, or, or for that matter, the boundaries between um, recognised or protected traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, and the public domain. These are not simple binary questions. They know they're, they're, there will never be very clear, absolute boundaries. And so, so much of the debate is about how to uh, uh, have a, 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 a appropriate um, relationship between the, these these uh, these concepts, uh, but also in a way that uh, lends itself to the necessary pluralism, because the solution uh, for a largely urbanised uh, 
uh, uh, Asian society might be very different uh, to a largely rural, dispersed community in in Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, and, and there, there are enormous cultural differences. Uh, uh, you know, that, that cannot be shoehorned into one or one or other uh, legal framework. So it, it's 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 incredibly important work. I think it's it is the future of. Uh, of IP, it has to be the future of IP, but uh, there's no getting around that it, that it is in, inherently uh, complex. It is it, it's inherently challenging to um, uh, represent the full diversity of, of of interests, the full diversity of claims to legitimate claims to equity and due recognition, uh, while retaining a, a reasonably coherent um, multilateral approach. So I, I have infinite admiration for those who've kept that kept that process going and of course we are due to see a diplomatic conference in 2024 yes. on genetic resources and that I, I would hope would be a real landmark achievement and uh, before you were saying that you couldn't talk about the trips agreement in this uh, in this conference oh. but then you moved <laughs> to the <laughs> yes. to deal with the trips here at the WTO how was that uh, transition from one organization to the other Uh, well, I, I'd always been fascinated by by, by trips, and indeed, um, uh, as as an Australian uh, official, I'd been involved in two uh, trips disputes. Um, I think still the two two most interesting ones: Canada Pharmaceuticals and U.S. Copyright. And uh, so this was, this was many years ago now, but that that sparked uh, immense uh, uh, intellectual interest on my part. Because I realized uh, that uh, there were so many unanswered questions about uh, the TRIPS agreement as a legal text, uh, even to the point of, okay, the, the TRIPS agreement incorporates the Berne Convention. Well, what does that mean when you interpret it as a, as a treaty? Does that mean uh, the Berne Convention has been brought in with all of its travaux, with all the diplomatic uh, records uh, going back to... 1886, or is it all uh, ab initio? That, uh, is the Berne Convention in the TRIPS Agreement, did that actually start in 1995? These, these questions were not clear. They were not resolved um, uh, in, the, in the period immediately following the entry into force of TRIPS. And really it was only the, um, the US copyright case in particular where at least a panel... Uh, took the approach, a more inclusive approach, uh, and uh, did look at the uh, diplomatic record of the Berne Convention in quite some detail to shed light on trips. So that that sparked an, an immensely strong interest in, in, the, in the trips agreement, obviously because of, I've been working uh, in the Asia-Pacific region uh, from 95, in different ways, 95 through to 2001, as so many countries wrestled with the immense uh, challenge of implementing TRIPS. And I think when, when, we, um, when we argue about TRIPS today, I, I, I often think that's been overlooked. The incredible achievement of so many countries, uh, so many WTO members, in bringing their systems into, in line with TRIPS in that period, introducing numerous new bodies of legislation, uh, establishing... Uh, IP or greatly upgrading IP administrations, establishing new administrations, 
training judges, establishing uh, procedures for uh, court proceedings, uh, border, border measures, enormous efforts were, were, were invested at, at that time. Uh, and uh, I think that, that, that perspective is, is sometimes lost. So that, those, those different aspects, the tremendous practical challenges of implementing TRIPS uh, in the Asia-Pacific region, and the experience of uh, dispute settlement uh, le- meant that this was really, really a, a central um, interest of mine right throughout, even though at that time, for a while, I was working on um, the un- more or less unrelated traditional knowledge genetic resources issues. Um, but at the same time, I was working on public health matters, and of course that, that is the predominant, you know, um, challenge uh, in dealing with TRIPS law and policy is how to get things right uh, when it comes to public health. So the, TRIPS is, you know, inevitably, but um, for very specific reasons, was a, was a really uh, strong fascination of mine. Um, also at a, at a more um, academic or scholarly level, it is a fascinating uh, object to, to, to analyse, to, to, uh, to, to get inside. And there are still some, some very, very significant um, legal issues associated with, with TRIPS that uh, uh, I think um, it's launched how many PhD theses, how many uh, journal articles, but there's, there's still a lot of uh, 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 unanswered questions surrounding TRIPS. And uh, I mean, I also work here uh, in the WTO with government procurement, and the division that you are director of is... I don't know. I don't recall what the exact name is, but it includes government procurement and competition. But why is government procurement under the IP? It's something that I've asked myself, and I don't know. I don't have. The, I don't know if it's a historical reason. Well, uh, we we have we uh, yes. Yeah, so, so it's the government uh, intellectual property, government procurement, and competition division. Uh, early on in its life, I think it was called the policy affairs division, which. I, I took to be kind of a euphemism for just all these weird sort of uh, uh, alien subjects that, that are not real trade policies, like. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it then became the intellectual property division, uh, and the, the exact topics have moved around a bit, but uh, we've, we've dealt with government procurement and, and competition. And it was led to a great deal of confusion. Uh, I had, uh, you know, so we had... Uh, colleagues working in government procurement and their business card would say intellectual property division and say what the hell so we actually had a retreat as a division say okay we have a branding problem we're an intellectual property division with a branding problem how do we fix this and uh, we we tried to come up with a a catchy title and uh, the one we came up with initially was the uh, the market governance division the idea being that these three areas uh, have in common the idea that uh, markets don't necessarily deliver public welfare in a sustainable way through their through their regular operation. Uh, that you you do need some degree of um, of government intervention. So that government intervention may take the form of the government granting you uh, an exclusive right over an invention or a, a trademark or whatever. Uh, that that may involve um, the government putting money into uh, providing uh, public goods in, in, in procurement, and 
taking a particular policy approach in the way that uh, public funds are spent. And of course, competition uh, policy is uh, about ensuring that competition functions, including vis-a-vis the IP system, competition functions in a way that benefits society overall in different ways. So that's the common thread. Uh, But it it seems if we call ourselves the market governance division, that would have been seen as a bit threatening and a bit kind of <laughs> imperialistic or <laughs> presumptuous. And so we went instead for the shopping list approach of uh, intellectual property, government procurement and competition, which at least has the value of being um, uh, transparent. Uh, so, uh, but the, the common thread between the areas has really come into focus. It's always been there. It's not so random, if you like, as it appears, but it's of course it's really come into focus in the uh, uh, dreadful experience of the of the pandemic, uh, because ultimately uh, the provision of, in particular, of, of vaccines, especially when this is a, a government function, that is of course a challenge for procurement, and uh, we saw uh, an enormous scramble to get procurement right, of course, um, uh, and. You know, we still have to learn the really hard lessons from that. But even the the debate about the necessary and proper debate about uh, uh, the IP dimension, that to my mind is actually technically subordinate to the procurement dimension because ultimately there's there's no point talking about TRIPS flexibilities and and, uh, the use of policy options under TRIPS in the abstract or in, in isolation. It has to be part of a procurement strategy whether that is procurement directly by the government saying, look, we are going to um, uh, engineer the production and the supply of uh, vaccines, or whether it's simply procurement in a conventional sense. Uh, It's the procurement that has to drive the the process. And likewise, competition policy, we see that coming into play uh, to to deal with, obviously, the the risk of... uh, 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 anti-competitive practices uh, 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 that that can lead to not only critical, if you like, commercial impact, but actual health impact. Uh, And so a a holistic, effective, practical response to the pandemic involves a whole range of of, uh, trade issues, of course, but those three in particular that we're responsible do do tie in together very importantly. And that's certainly been been the, the essence of our uh, of our outreach, uh, our technical assistance, our, our policy support for for members during the pandemic. I do. I I think it's perfect that you are now the director of this division because it does have a common thread, which is also much like your career that has had a common thread, but perhaps it's not evident uh, until you actually see it. So I don't know if that was probably meant to be. <laughs> but the other, the last question that I have is uh, I've been dealing with TRIPS for 12 years. For many years, it seems that a lot of the work that we were doing was a bit more like routine work, but it, that seems to have changed like in the the last year or so. How do you see the next uh, couple of years in this space? Uh, well, I think, I, think, uh, <clears throat> I think anyone working in the multilateral field and and certainly anyone working in in, in the Secretariat is obliged to be optimistic. It's it's a professional responsibility. (laughs) So I am optimistic. What what direction is is my optimism? Well, I'd like to 
link back to the experience I mentioned working in APEC on, uh, on TRIPS implementation and, and the approach there. Because, frankly, it, it's, it is exceedingly unlikely that we will see a renegotiation of, of TRIPS in any substantive sense. Uh, of course, we have extremely important negotiations underway regarding the pandemic response, uh, but that's a pandemic response. That's not a, an overhaul of the, the agreement generally. Uh, we have provision in the TRIPS agreement for a regular review, the Article 73 review. Uh, and uh, I myself wrote what I thought was a pretty good paper on this from the Australian point of view, I guess in 1999 when that review started. Nothing's happened. So just empirically, we have to say that there's not much appetite for um, a even a factual review of TRIPS implementation overall, let alone, uh, you know, a, a, a renegotiation. Uh, so that's, my optimism doesn't extend that far. What I, what I do see happening is the TRIPS Council in particular becoming much more a, a forum for policy exchange. Not zero-sum debate or fault-finding or uh, even um, uh, uh, querying um, implementation because for the most part uh, members have uh, implemented the TRIPS thoroughly and in good faith and, and, and effectively to the extent resources permit. So that initial concern that I very much experienced in the late 90s leading up to 2000, the concern that there would be this avalanche of, of disputes for non-compliant uh, members, it just hasn't taken place. It just has not taken place and I don't see it taking place because there's such a, uh, been such a huge effort in implementing trips in different ways. But what's happened in fact uh, over the last two decades is uh, uh, second and third generations of post-trips reforms and reviews of, of domestic laws. Uh, and there's a huge amount to be learnt from that, that experience. Uh, we have the framework in the TRIPS Council already. It, it is literally part of the agenda to have that conversation. So whether it's the question of the tricky question of what's the scope of uh, biotech patenting, for example, the, the long-running question of Article 27.3b and uh, more generally, uh, what, what, what is this about uh, uh, patenting gen genetic material and so on. There's an immense amount of practical experience about that. Uh, since TRIPS came into, into force, the internet, the, the digital economy has come into being. Uh, and governments around the world are, are wrestling with the, the question of how uh, the conventional IP system sits within the digital environment. Uh, and there's been, of course, numerous uh, uh, revisions of laws, adaptations of laws uh, to respond to the digital context. We can learn a lot from each other uh, in, in, in um, uh, sharing information about that experience as part of the regular existing review mandate of the, of the Council. Geographical indications, you know, this, this, um, this constant, constant, um, almost cultural war about geographical indications. Well, there's been an immense amount of activity on geographical indications, uh, uh, bilateral agreements, uh, 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 pr progress in, in WIPO, but also uh, 
a wide range of, of domestic experiences, uh, all sorts of elements such as wine trade agreements, uh, adaptations of trademark law to take account of geographical indications or not to exclude them. There's so much to be to be learnt, and uh, if if we could really prime the Trips Council as a genuine uh, forum of exchange of uh, of information about. Uh, the choices that are that are taken domestically, and to turn it into a, a, a real um, uh, forum for a, a policy exchange, it would do everybody uh, a, a real service, because there's nothing else. Uh, they're not even in WIPO. Is there a, a body that has that range of, uh, of yeah. uh, competence and responsibility? So that's the, the, and we see this happening um, uh, incrementally in the Trips Council. Uh, I, I think it. I think it can take root uh, if there is if there is the demand and interest, of course. Uh, and we do see it happening in some specific areas, such as the work on innovation, such as the work on public interest and IP, and of course, most dramatically, most importantly, recently on uh, how to respond to to a, a you know a devastating pandemic. Uh, the Trips Council can, I think, rise to rise to the challenge. Um, and we have the material. We, we, there's, there's, there's fantastic um, content uh, that we could really um, uh, draw on in, in, a, in a more inclusive, more dynamic, more forward-looking uh, discussion in, in the Council. Well, I think that on that optimi optimistic note, <laughs> thank you very much, Tony. It was a great and insightful conversation. A real privilege to, to join you, and I'm, I'm uh, uh, delighted to, to have the opportunity. Thank you. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?